Welcome back to the OIS Podcast, a final reminder to register for our Gene Therapy Innovation Showcase, taking place this Thursday, February 18th. Visit ois.net forward slash events to claim your spot. On this episode, we meet up with Dr. Calvin Roberts at the crossroads of technology and medicine. Calvin is currently the CEO of Lighthouse Guild, but he arrived following a transition from clinical practice into industry. Cal shares how he decided to make the move from practice into industry, and then to his current role as an advocate to bring cutting edge technology to patients with vision loss. If you want to get a dose of reality on what it's like to take the leap into industry, you don't want to miss Cal's insights on the necessary considerations of autonomy, security, and the impact on those around you. Let's tune in. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Retina OIS podcast. Again, this is Faras Rahal, partner at Retina Vitreous Associates in Los Angeles and partner at Excite Ventures in New York. And I am more than delighted to have an old friend of mine as guest today, an old friend and teacher and mentor of mine. How old? How old? Are you talking about old? By old. By old for us. Well, so let me clarify. Old meaning in the duration of the friendship, certainly not in the biology of either the guest or the host. Okay. (laughs) The duration of the relationship dates back to, well, I guess about... 1990s, I think, when I started the residency at Cornell, and I'll get right to it. Uh, Dr. Cal Roberts, who is our guest, was a faculty member at Cornell at that time, and was for many years before and thereafter. Uh, Cal is a, a good friend, and as I said, a mentor, and after being at Cornell for some time, he ended up going into private practice in Manhattan, private practice of general ophthalmology, cataract, and refractive surgery, And then he went on to become senior vice president and chief medical officer of eye care at Bausch and Loam. And after those three or four careers is now president and CEO of the Lighthouse Guild in New York City, which is part of the reason we're here today. We're going to talk about that, but I want to hear about a lot of the previous stuff too, whatever Cal, Dr. Roberts feels comfortable to talk about. And Cal, I believe you still are clinical professor of ophthalmology at Weill Cornell Medical Center. Is that right? I do. And I still teach this course on medical ethics, where where we talk about some of the interesting dilemmas that ophthalmologists face. And how does a young doctor figure out how to tackle them? So uh, still good fun. I still look forward to, to doing it all the time. So Cal, as a, as a good friend of yours, I've, I've watched you shift in these different career moves, and, and I know they've all been fascinating for you, but the one that gives me as a clinician uh, the greatest pause and the greatest interest to hear about is that transition you made from private practice of ophthalmology in Manhattan at the very you know pinnacle of practicing ophthalmology. I, I know your practice. I know what you were doing. I know how great you were at it. And you were in the prime of a of a excellent career as a as a gifted cataract surgeon. You then decided at some point to move into industry. And for our viewers who are clinicians like myself who might be considering an opportunity in industry, 
Tell me about that decision. What were the challenges in that decision? What drove you and what kind of anxieties or apprehensions did you have before and after leaving the practice of medicine, which you spent an entire lifetime getting to? So uh, it's, a, it's a great topic. And it's the question that uh, people ask me all the time. Uh, how do I know whether I would like to go into the pharmaceutical or biotech industry? And the answer is that you have to kind of figure out who you are. So there's a couple points to it. What I love about my jobs are the relationships that I have with colleagues, the opportunities to mentor others and to be mentored. One of the things about medicine is that the way you practice it, it can either be a team sport or it can be a individual sport. So that if you are a doctor in private practice, this is a very much an individual sport. You are working mostly by yourself. And the beauty of working by yourself is the absolute, absolute autonomy that you have. This ability to make decisions unilaterally. So when I was a, a doctor in a premium cataract practice on Park Avenue, I must have made a hundred decisions every single day. You need surgery, you don't need surgery. You should have a premium IOL, you should have a torque, you should have a multifocal, you should come back in two months, you should take this medicine, you should do that. I make these decisions all day long. When you go into industry, you rarely make a decision on your own. Mm. Everything then becomes a team sport with team decisions. And so for some people, this can be frustrating because you know what should happen. But what happens is that if you make a unilateral decision, the number of people that it's going to impact might be significant. And they're not going to like the fact that you made a decision that impacted them particularly without discussing it with them and having them be a part of it. And so that if you're going to embrace a role in pharmaceuticals or biotech, one of the first things you have to decide is how do I feel about losing that autonomy that I have in practice, that ability to make on the spot decisions all the time using what I know and the situation to do what's best for my patients. You're giving that up, that's gonna be gone. Second thing, security. One of the things I know for sure is that if you are a good doctor in private practice, you can probably continue to do this job for the full length of your career. For as long as you wanna do it, you can probably continue to do it. And you don't have to ever worry about the fact that you might 
lose your job. Now, when you go into industry, it's just the opposite. Okay, because um, you know what happens if this doesn't work out? You're going to get fired. Okay, and you're going to be without a job. Okay, and while you may be the world's greatest practicing retina surgeon, turns out, you know what? You might not be the greatest medical director of a pharmaceutical company. And what happens if you're, turns out that you just turn out you're no good at it. But the more complicated is what happens if you are good at it and you're really successful and you're at the top of your game, but then the company gets sold and you're out of a job for no fault of your own. And again, you're out of work. And these things happen all the time. So consequently, what I find that most clinicians want to do is they want to stick their toe in and see how it feels, knowing that if it doesn't work, well, I can always go back to my practice. Um, so they're happy to try the high wire act as long as there's a net. Um, sometimes that works. But more often, if you're going to go and get one of the bigger jobs in industry, they're going to require that you do this full time and that you give up your practice. And you say to yourself, well, I really want to do this, but give up my practice? Give up the practice that I spent all these years busting my chops in order to be successful and get a following and now walk away with no promise that this is going to work out? So this really takes a leap of faith. And it really takes a feeling that this is a unique opportunity. So this is what I had at, uh, at Baal I was very fortunate that uh, I was hired by Brent Saunders, who's the CEO, and Fred Hassan, who was the chairman of the board. And they had a vision for where they wanted to bring uh, Bashalam. And what they needed was a clinician who could get out front and tell the story of where this company was going to colleagues, to other ophthalmologists. When I took this job, my friends looked at me like, this is the most puzzling thing that I've ever heard of. That, as you said, you would walk away from a very successful premium cataract practice on Park Avenue in New York to go work at Bash and Lam with no security. Uh, people thought maybe I was sick. 
you know, maybe he has okay? like <laughs> Parkinson's or something, and he can't operate anymore, and consequently that's why he's doing it or something like that. I mean, you know, which which is you know not the case at all. No, my health was great. Um, so I did it because um, I saw an opportunity that other people don't see, which is which is what you do in the investment world. You look around and you try to see opportunities that other people don't see. And that's the key to a, to a successful career, whether it's um, in medicine or in, uh, or in, or in investing. So um, the hard fact, and this is a fact that I uh, tell people, which is, uh, which is kind of hard, is that this is not a retirement job. And so people say, well, when I'm ready to retire, maybe I'll go into industry, okay? Earth to doctor. <laughs> no one wants you when you're 70 years old. Yeah. As a matter of fact, truth of the matter is no one probably wants you when you're 60 years old. So um, when I was hired by Bastion Lime, I was 55. And so I was, um, you know, at the peak of my surgical career. Um, and so the question is, well, gee, are you willing to walk away um, at that age? If I, was, if I was smarter, I would have gone earlier. Because if I had gone earlier, if I had gone when I was 45 rather than 55, the number of opportunities that could have become available to me were that much more. And so there's this trade-off. There's this trade-off between what you know and who you know. And so that some of the medical jobs in industry are based on what you know. And so your ability to know medicine, to be able to work on clinical development, to be able to run a clinical trial, to understand how medicines work. So that's kind of like one type of job. The other type of job is who you know, the relationships that you have within the ophthalmic community. We're really fortunate as ophthalmologists that the community is relatively small. And so that um, we can know many of our colleagues. And so sometimes you get hired because of the fact that you are well-regarded and well-known within the community. And therefore you can use your network for the benefit of the company that you're being hired by. Well, in general, that tends to happen as you've been in practice for a longer period of time. And so that, and so that the people who get hired for who they know tend to be the people who've been in practice for longer. The people who are hired for what they know tend to be hired at a younger age. I never put it in that context. Did you, uh, when you made this transition, were you wanting to or considering ways to dip your toe as you alluded to and realize that wasn't realistic? Or did you plan prospectively along the way that you were going full steam ahead, if and when? 
Yeah, so I was so I was the latter. Um, I um, wanted to go in and really do this. Um, I saw an opportunity that maybe even you know my friends Brent Saunders and Fred Hassan didn't see the opportunity to take the company uh, and tell the story. And I knew that I had to do it um, full time. So I didn't dip my toe. Um, the other is that there's one more factor that I left out, which I really want to uh, talk about. And the other is the impact your decision has on others. So, I mean, my decision to um, leave clinical practice and to go into uh, industry impacted a lot of people, starting with the people who worked in my practice. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I wasn't there, going to be there anymore. And so all these people who worked with me for many years, now all of a sudden, okay, Cal Roberts isn't there. The other people that impacts is your family. And particularly my wife, Andrea. So she and I had been married for 30 years at the time that I gave up clinical practice. And she married a doctor who went to work in the morning and came home at night for dinner. And all of a sudden, I take this job that often I am out of town 20 nights a month and she's home by herself um, or home. And if I was a little bit younger and her kids were still home, she would have been had to be home with her kids. And so the impact on her in many ways was greater than the impact it was on me. Her life had to change because uh, I wasn't there. I wasn't there like I was before. And so I think that is part of the uh, decision-making that I think people have to think about is to how a decision to change your career is going to impact others. I can almost hear my wife calling you to find me one of those jobs that keeps me away 20 out of 30 days. <laughs> Maybe you'll get a secret call from her. That's very cool of you to share that personal aspect of it. And that's honestly, uh, when uh, young professionals are making decisions like this, these are the hugest parts of it, really, uh, and the toughest parts of it. And I'm glad you shared that. And you were in your mid-50s at the time. So still a challenging part of it is balancing all these changes into an already pre-existing lifestyle. And and obviously, it worked out for you. And uh, you... You, you've then subsequently gone on to do the lighthouse now. So one after the other, but they've all been for a good period of time. You did Bausch and Lohm for 10 years. Right. Yep. And you were in clinical practice for over 20 years. Yeah, I was, uh, I was uh, full-time at Cornell for 16. I was in private practice for another 10. So uh, yeah, 16 in, uh, cl- in uh, academics, 10 years in private practice, 10 years at, at Bausch and Lohm. Can you tell us a little bit, since we're on to it now, the history of the lighthouse? It, it's uh, many decades, if not 100 years, and I know fairly little about that history. Can you share with us some of the history that's led to them to the current 
situation? Yeah, so the lighthouse was founded in 1915. And so you do the math, 116 year old organization. And for most of its history, what it was, was an organization that was providing services to people who were blind or severely visually impaired. Now, what we have come to learn is that there is this huge population of people who are not completely blind, but who are moderately visually impaired. So for us, if I was gonna ask you a question, I'm gonna put you on the spot, my friend. Okay. okay. All right. What percentage of people who are legally blind, so that's 2,200 or worse, visual field 30 degrees or less, what percentage of the people who are legally blind became legally blind after the age of 21? After the age of 21. Um, I'm going to guess 65 to 70%. Which is what I would have said before, <laughs> if before you I joined. <laughs> <laughs> right? Turns out that it's more than 95%. All right. So, and the reason why I choose 21 is because 21, by 21, most people have completed at least most of their formal education. And so that if we're saying that 95% of the people who are legally blind did so after the age of 21, what that means is that they grew up, they grew up as a sighted person and then had to reinvent themselves now as a visually impaired person. And so that these are people who know what a keyboard is, who know what a cell phone is. And so that with great technology, you can take some of these people and try to bring them back to the lives that they had when they were sighted. And so that's what excites me. This ability to help people to discover ways that they can have independence, navigation, uh, knowledge in ways that, that you and I never thought was possible. When I came to Lighthouse Guild, I had no idea about some of this technology that was available. And the more I learn about this, I become a walking show and tell. I just show people all this great technology and show them all this great stuff that's available. And everybody goes, wow, never knew this stuff was available. So consequently, what I do when I speak to retina surgeons is I show them great stuff and I say to them, send me your patients and don't send me just your patients who are blind. I'm happy to see your patients who are blind. Send me your patients who are 2050, 2060, 2070, who have a small central scotoma that's keeping them from being able to read, send them to me. I'm gonna show them stuff that they never believed was possible because I can't tell you how many 
people I see, very successful people, all they know about is a magnifying glass. They walk around with a magnifying glass hanging around their neck, have no idea the technology that's potentially available to help them really lead greater productive lives. And so what we're trying to do at Lighthouse Guild is take this venerable institution, this 115-year-old institution, and turn it into a tech company, a company that brings together the great minds that are working on great technology. And we act like the connecting rods. We bring them all together, the entrepreneurs and the and the uh, scientists and the academics and the physicians, and of course, the users. We bring them all together to advance this technology. So uh, that's what gets me excited. This is similar to what we did at Bausch & Lomb, which is to just raise the level of innovation. And now we're doing the same thing in an area that is undiscovered. And so that's what makes it so exciting. Dr. Calvin Roberts, my friend, my teacher, one of my great mentors from the early days of my ophthalmology career um, and uh, a great ophthalmologist and now uh, a, a leader at the Lighthouse. Thank you for coming on. I, it, through all these careers that you've had, it seems that you're excited at a high level by all of them and we know you're succeeding at all of them. And thank you for coming. Oh, for us, this is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. For listening, and thank you to our guest, Dr. Kelvin Roberts, for sharing his experience and insights. Be sure to follow Lighthouse Guild online to learn how they are addressing and preventing vision loss through technology. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share us with your colleagues to help spread the word. And while you're there, click Get Involved if you'd like to be featured on our podcast.